Somewhere deep in the basin of the Pacific, a network of hydrophones crawls across the ocean floor. These hydrophones are relics from the Cold War built by the US Navy to monitor the movements of enemy submarines underwater. In 1992, off the coast of Whidbey Island in Puget Sound, they recorded something else. A haunting, ghostly sound that pulsed onto the graph pages at a frequency of 52 hertz. It was a whale. The technicians struggled to believe what they were seeing. Now on paper, the vocalizations looked like they belonged to a blue whale, except the blue whale's call usually registers around 15 to 20 hertz, so 52 was completely off the charts. So far off that no other whale is known to communicate at that pitch. As far as anyone knew, it was the only recording and the only whale of its kind. The technicians named him 52 Blue. 52 Blue's identity remained a mystery for 30 years. No one knows where he came from, what kind of whale he is, what he looks like, or if he even is a, a he. But the tale of the loneliest whale has not gone unheard. Here at Lonely Whale, we've been inspired by 52, the whale who dares to call out at his own frequency. 52 Hertz is a podcast for the unique voices working in ocean conservation. These are the entrepreneurs, activists, and youth leaders going against the current to rethink our approach to plastics and environmentalism on a global scale. In this, our first episode of our first podcast ever, I speak with Lonely Whale co-founder Adrian Genier about the plastic crisis in our oceans, our power to turn the tide by going against it, and why none of us, not even 52 Blue, are ever actually alone. I'm your host, Patrice Jones. Welcome to 52 Hertz, the Lonely Whale podcast. But first, some good news from around the reef. All right, raise your hand if you've ever stood at the edge of water, whether that's the ocean or lake or river or swamp, you name it, don't, it don't matter. But I actually felt better about life. Okay, I realize I can't actually see you, so I'm just gonna assume that everybody raised their hand. <laughs> Turns out there's actually some pretty real healing benefits, both physical and psychological, from hanging out around water. Water actually helps calm us when we're feeling stressed. And Dr. Jay Nichols calls this our blue mind which actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. 60% of the human body is water, so. And you can learn more about Blue Mind in Dr. J. Nichols' book of the same title. Just like I always say, wetter the better. Welcome to the first ever episode of 52 Hertz, the Lonely Whale podcast. As it's our first episode, it seems only right to be interviewing the man himself, the co-founder of Lonely Whale. Some may know him as Vinny Chase, the sickeningly handsome movie star from Entourage, but the man behind the man is so much more than great looks and a sensational beard. He's an entrepreneur, an environmentalist, a leader, and as I said, the co-founder of The Lonely Whale, a beautiful non-profit that made this podcast possible. So today we'll be talking about eco-anxiety, our spiritual connection to the earth, the role the plastic plays in the world today, how it affects our oceans, and why we need to rethink our approach to plastic globally and the potential consequences if we don't. So without any further ado, welcome Adrian Grenier. I, you know, I have to say, you just barely slipped in the beard compliment just in time, <laughs> because I don't think this beard will be here for very long. No. Um, yeah, its days are numbered. Uh, mate, honestly, of all the achievements that you've gone through for your life, I'm sure you've done a lot. I don't think there's anything more impressive about you than that beard. I couldn't agree more. I'm very proud of this. It's <laughs> four months in the making. 
Four, is that it? Oh, bloody hell, I've been doing mine for about 26 years and I'm just barely getting past the lip. <laughs> I'll save it for you and I'll there send you it go. to you. <laughs> you sell it to me. <laughs> yeah. um, great. Well, thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it. And, you know, and furthermore, thank you so much for starting The Lonely Whale. You know, I'm sure a lot of the people here will know, you know, exactly who you are. Um, but a lot of people, you know, know you as Vinny Chase from Entourage, the the crazy drug addict, sex fiend <laughs> uh, that that he was, you know. But, you know, I know full well how much you've done outside of that and how impactful you are outside of the entertainment industry. So I'd love to hear more about who you are and, and how you see yourself in in this crazy world of 2020. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I have to say I'm glad that your takeaway of the entourage character is accurate. Uh, a lot of times, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times I think, generally speaking, People look at it as look at Vince as this superhero without consequences, impervious to mm. all the pitfalls of, of fame. Your description, I think, is more accurate. You know, there's there's a lot of darkness in, in that character, and um, of course, it's a comedy. You don't want to hit the the dark notes too hard, but if you really start to, you know, deconstruct that whole era and that show that reflected a time in this country, I think there's. There's a lot of a lot of uh, dark tones in there, so yeah. So I'm glad I'm I'm really happy to be in the next phase of my life, and I'm really doubling down on my work for the environment and for people now from a new perspective. Now with the wisdom that I've been able to accumulate in, in recent years, uh, hopefully updating and renewing my commitment to to people and planet the environment. That's beautiful to hear. Um, so t tell me about that. Tell me about that that journey to the wise and well thought out person you are who founded a, a, a really impactful nonprofit that fights for our oceans. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started Lonely Whale uh, almost five years ago now, four, four plus years ago. I had been doing environmental work for many, many years, I, I guess at least 15 years now. And I'm always so pleasantly surprised that there's always renewed enthusiasm and curiosity for, for how to engage, like ways to get involved, ways to participate. Uh, Lonely Well was just the, the most recent iteration of, of my effort, um, but I've, I've been doing different kinds of work for, for many years. And Lonely Well, the initial impetus was to bring people together bond them with one another and then connect them with the ocean because for too long uh, i'd noticed that the, the, the ocean was being damaged by human beings and while um, climate change had a place on the world stage and in, in our uh, collective psyche the ocean had gone largely underserved uh, pr pretty much ignored and, and i was I was just very curious about why that was. And I think it, it comes down to the fact that the ocean is this vast, big, scary, dark, deep place that's abstract uh, and far out there, out, just outside of reach, outside of our everyday experience. So it's so easy to just dismiss or, or ignore. Uh, so I thought, well, we can't, we can't, we can't care unless we connect, right? So the first and foremost necessity is to 
to try and connect the ocean to our everyday experience, try and bridge that gaps. Because I grew up in New York, and I mean, we are surrounded by, well, rivers that go right into the ocean. You can see the ocean as uh, two you know, great rivers, the Hudson River and the Eastside River go right into the ocean. Uh, and yet, even though I grew up here on the ocean, essentially an ocean city, I didn't feel like I was on, on the ocean. Um, it, still, the ocean was far out there and, and like uh, out, just outside of my everyday experience. So I was thinking if, if I had that experience, and in my mind, I grew up in a concrete jungle, not on the ocean, not in nature. <clears throat> imagine what people who are landlocked must feel, their lack of connection to the ocean. Um, and, and just generally people around the world distracted on their phones, uh, in their everyday busy lives. You know, the, the nature and the ocean is just so far removed. Uh, so initially it was just a very simple um, communication, communications challenge and opportunity. How do we get people to connect with the ocean? And then the premise is once they do, how could they not want to you know, do everything in their power to protect the ocean and of course all the marine wildlife and all of the touch points and all of the um, you know the necessity for for people's efforts and energy so that was the initial impetus and then we got into campaigning then we got into uh, you know getting out there and actually creating programs uh, and you know all very successful within our our, our philosophy so um, I'm now coming back to reinvigorate that initial mission statement, to really think about what it, what it means to, to make connections, to create relationships to human beings and to the planet, to the earth, to the natural world, to animals. And I, I really believe that that disconnect, the disconnect that we all experience, and especially now with COVID and self-isolating and separation, the further separation that we have from one another, it's, it's now a, a bigger uh, imperative that we uh, find ways to, to form those connections. And I think, you know, especially now we have time to reflect and think about how we want to go about building the new world, um, you know, once we all reemerge from our homes. What you're essentially talking about is being part of your environment um, and you're not being completely separate from it. Uh, and in believing that we're just sort of plonked on top of all this nature has kind of given this, given us this, uh, this idea that we are, we're foreign from it and we act more hostile towards our, our environment because of it. And people build businesses in the wrong way um, and, they, and they, they build homes in the wrong way. They shoot movies in the wrong way. And they do all these things in the wrong way because it's seen as something outside of themselves. I think bringing back that connection to to the oceans is is really important. One thing I know that Lonely World has been talking about a lot recently is eco-anxiety. Um, so that's something I would love to hear your, your take on. Is there a way to move past that so you can get into a phase of creating action uh, rather than just having feelings and opinions about the problem? Part of what I've noticed is having to address those amongst us that are checked out and apathetic who found the problems of the world too great, too vast, too overwhelming, so they shut down as a protection, right, as a way to protect themselves. Mm. I mean, looking at the wildfires down in Australia, I was down there when they, they were happening. It's like 
to fathom the destruction and the amount of animals and wildlife and species destruction is utterly overwhelming, right? So it's those of us that can't handle, you know, that pain will will tune out and um, try and normalize or, or forget or, or escape having to face it. And then the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have this all-knowing um, sort of environmental arrogance. And I see so much of this mm. uh, out in the ecosphere, people who are well-meaning, but they come at it from this place of knowing, you know, throwing stats at you and talking down and telling you what you need to do to quote unquote save the earth. Uh, and I think that's also the on the opposite side, unhelpful. Um, so I've all and I've <laughs> I've I've been in both places. You know, when I was younger I was, you know, cocky and, and arrogant and I thought I knew everything and I was wagging my finger at everybody, telling everybody what they needed to do. But of course, ignoring all the things that I could do myself to, to make changes. Uh, then it was like overwhelming. So I tuned out and shut down and then stopped doing anything and eventually came to, I, I, I hope, uh, a nice balance. And I do a lot of work in oscillating between the, the micro and the macro, you know, looking at the big picture, understanding it, feeling it. Again, and then this is, um, coming back to how we connect, right? We we can connect in an intellectual, conceptual way or understanding the data and the numbers in an abstract way, but to feel, to truly feel the suffering of the world so that you can really, you know, comprehend the depth and the, the width of, of what's needed in the world. Uh, so being in that, being able to see the big picture, and then also now coming back to what you can do in the moment. So this think globally, act locally mentality, coming back down to, to self and you know what you can do in your home and in your own body and your own health, you know, expand out outward from there. But always going back and forth, learning to practice that oscillation, uh, the wave, riding that wave of peaks and valleys so that you get the full picture, but you don't become debilitated and you don't become ineffectual. I think it's a practice, right? Not to get, not to feel safe in what you know, because let's face it, like you, you, we don't know what the future holds. That's what, that's what's mm. so promising is if we can make it anything. Uh, if you know we're all going to die by 2030, you know, I'm hearing a lot of that around, like, oh, by 2030, everything's going to, like, oh, really? You know that? Like, so the fact that we don't know, the fact that there's, that anything's possible, and it's hard to, to, to not know. The uncertainty is hard to hold. Um, but if you can, it leaves room for possibility. And, and if you can dip in and out of big and small and not stay in, you know, all-knowing arrogance and also not get apathetic uh, and give up, um, there, there's wisdom in that balance. So that, that's what I'm hoping to now reintroduce into Lonely Well, and that starts with self, personal development work. So how, how do we create ocean heroes? How do we create humans that want to do the right thing and give them the tools, not just the tools to go out and tell the world what needs to be done, but personal tools, like how can they become the embodiment of the wisdom of the ocean? How do they live uh, in reflection of the ocean in their lives and have a lifelong sustained effort uh, 
for the planet without breaking down. And um, so starting with self, the way we conduct ourselves internally, making sure that we're treating each other as well as we want others to treat the ocean, that we don't get overworked, um, and that we have like time for self-care. And then ultimately starting to spread that out into the world so that we're not just expecting people to do the right thing for the ocean. We're also expecting people to do the right thing for themselves because they Mm. are a reflection of the ocean. Right. Yeah. No, I, that's beautiful. And I think that that's, it's completely right. What we actually need is to, to work on helping people be in a position where they can think about these things, um, and where they can, they can elevate themselves, but not become overwhelmed by something that is ultimately bigger than themselves. And finding ways to develop community is, is really, you know, it's really important because that's what holds it. That's what holds it all together. I know full well that when I first started really taking understanding to the problems in the world, not just with climate change, but with everything. Uh, I had, I think it's called a messiah complex. I felt like I was charged with the responsibility to save the world, even though I had no idea what that looked like. And it, and it, it can be really crippling. And it, affect, it affected me for a really long time until I finally kind of was able to just breathe out and go, this is not just my responsibility. I heard someone else speak on the same subject and said they feel like they got the whole weight of the world on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, someone else feels like that. Yeah. And a problem shared is a problem halved. That means there's two of us. So I've only got to save half the world. That's that's half the work. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Maybe you know, maybe there's some more people out there. And from that moment of hearing that this girl who just said it in a casual way, but I knew what she meant and knew how she felt, made me realize that I'm not the only one who believes what I believe. I'm not the only one who feels charged with the responsibility to go forth and, and do better. I think that's a great thing, again, that Lonely Well has done. It's created this, this community of people, young people who are who are about it. They don't just talk about it. They are about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm smiling really big right now. You're talking about the kids like that's like they, they're really incredible. I think that's, that's the proudest thing that we've done is bring um, this work to young people. Actually, I mean, they're, they're already doing it and want to do it. We're just helping to bring them together through the the conference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that's kind of the way it needs to be done in order to, you know, grow this community of people who really want to make things happen. One of the challenges that we are seeing is how do we share with these youngsters uh, methods of creating not only campaigns, but really going back into their communities and planting the seeds of change. In a lot of ways, we've been told by the capitalist system that we are under that the way you make change is by creating a nonprofit. Uh, and I mean, it's <laughs> built right into the language, right? In a capitalist system, when it's all about making money and money talks, money is the way you drive change in the world, we are now given diminished tools to actually enact change within that system because we are now a nonprofit. And it's a huge problem within uh, the nonprofit world because. Everybody's fighting for such small crumbs, mm. peanuts, um, that a lot of our time and energy is focused around trying to, and unfortunately, compete with other nonprofits for such meager money. How do we get out of that mentality? How do we s- step out of the fringe effort, make 
making changing the world something that is accessible to everybody and is not something you just do on the side or just donate to at, at the end of the year for a tax break, you know, where everything's in- incentivized by money or getting something out of it, where, you know, still this capitalist mentality that I need to get something in return in order to do it, as opposed to it just being something that we are, that we live, that we embody uh, socially. The next phase I really do believe is how do we get out of this nonprofit mentality mm-hmm. where we we see it as like this other world that we do. We, we need to create uh, a way in which we can live every day amongst each other to satisfy the deep needs of a society and the human beings within it, including our environment, like that is where, that is our home. So how do we create a society that isn't exploiting itself for some future vision of McMansions on a hill and, you know, too many cars and uh, Jeff Bezos becoming a trillionaire? Like, I don't really think that that's not in and of itself sustainable. So while on, on one hand teaching tools of nonprofit work and campaigns, also trying to tap into innovation of, and especially these young young people they are they are open and they are ready to ideate and create something new so instead of trying to condition them to just do it the way we've been doing it because frankly like we're still failing right the oceans are still screwed like there's a lot of ocean organizations in existence and yet there's still a problem because the collective resources that we're putting to solve the issue is dwarfed exponentially by the fishing industry, is dwarfed exponentially by all the industries that want to exploit the natural resources for profit. So how can we now allow these kids not constrain them by indoctrinating them into a mentality that separates them and tells them that the only way they can make change is by doing this thing outside of the system? But how do we give them an opportunity to tap into their truest uh, ability to create and uh, find it to build a new world. So what happens is, for some reason, we're not rewarding the people who are doing the most with the most money. It feels as though the people who are trying to do so much good get burned out and get held to an incredibly high standard that is very difficult to meet. And the people who don't really care just kind of get left to do what they do. They call them social enterprises now, or you can call it social capitalism, whatever you want. Um, where companies have an actual mission to complete a goal that a non-profit could have uh, while selling product and doing these things and finding ways to make better supply chains and, and distribution channels and all these different things that, that we know contribute to climate change or to the uh, to degradation of the environment. And that's kind of why I decided to start a business rather than do a, non- do a non-profit. And I have a very clear goal in mind, which is all around protecting our oceans. So my question to you is, now, would you have made Lonely Well a, a for-profit company or a, a social enterprise or something like that? Or would you have chosen to still do it the way you've done it um, in 2020? I think it really gets down to fundamentally, do I believe that capitalism as, as a, a societal structure is ultimately going to create the world that we want deeply inside of us. And we can try and create new little dynamics within that, 
but is money is money here to stay and is it the only way that we can actually uh, create a society? Because yeah, you, you, you should be able to live, feed yourself, um, all your basic needs, you know? And so is there a way mm. to, to, to redistribute our sense of value, not just financial value, but like value itself? Because you said, um, you know, why is it that people in doing quote unquote good are held to a different standard than those that are exploiting the world? And that's, I think, because of money itself, which has um, a limited ability to transfer the actual value created, and it doesn't take into account the externalities and the destruction. We measure, through the GDP, we measure the transaction of goods and services. And something that just exists in nature has no value until it is exploited, turned into a good or good or service, and then bought and sold. Uh, so, I mean, I think money itself fundamentally is flawed in actually reflecting the, the true dynamic of that transaction. You know, the whole dynamic, not just the benefit that, you know, somebody gets something they need and someone gets to sell something so they can then buy something they need. But the whole chain, the whole ch chain of transaction with the planet. So I do believe that we need to fundamentally re reconstruct our system to recognize the, the hidden value, the hidden economic value inherent within nature, the natural world. Uh, and and that way, when you buy something, the value isn't um, falsely inexpensive, or uh, right. it, or at least it would reflect the damages out in the natural world, and 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 including like our everyday life's experience. You know, um, I I highly doubt that Jeff Bezos has created almost a trillion dollars <laughs> worth of value in the world. If you if you measure out everything that that he has done and that Amazon has created and destroyed and if you even it out, I doubt he's made a trillion dollars. It's a false number. It's not accurate. Probably it's in wrong. Debt. He's probably in debt. Exactly. <laughs> hey Jeff, you owe us, right? And Oh, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think we're just trying to make sense of a system that is fundamentally senseless. Senseless. There you go. Dollars and senseless. <laughs> <laughs> so my my where I kind of start walking the line is where I try not to think about solutions in a in a utopian world where I go, you know, just because we know that Jeff Bezos owes whatever to the community that is our planet. Um, doesn't mean he's going to give it. So the, the so then the question becomes, you know, how do we instead of tearing something down and putting something up, which you know is something like capitalism, I don't think the, the idea of tearing it down really works in my in my head at least uh, from an applicable standpoint. So my in my head, I'm like, how do we make the transition for what tearing it down and rebuilding it would look like? Where do we start from step one today? How do we bring that about? Um, because mm -hmm. the only way I see to do it is to bridge that gap rather than um, than just bring the whole thing down altogether. 
how do we fix the damage. boat while we're right, at sail? Exactly. Exactly. At sea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't know if uh, in history that's ever been done before. Mm. I mean, I. I don't know if any. I don't know if it's possible to correct a system without first destroying it entirely and then yeah. rebuilding it from scratch. I mean, I. Maybe it's possible, but. Yeah, you know, maybe the kids can tell us how to do it. I mean, I, right. I just don't see it. <laughs> yeah, know? and and I think that's why in this in this world you see a lot of people who just are like just tear it down. Just, let's just get to it. It's gonna yeah. hurt. Let's just get it's, to it's it. It's gonna and get worse it. before it gets better, but it will get better. Yeah, and it's those of yeah. us with privilege, those of us that are benefiting from the way things are. They're like, hey, wait, hold on, maybe we can figure this out. Let's not go not too fast. Like we're in because, and and as as a person of privilege who's you know really enjoyed um the, you know the, the the spoils of capitalism um you know even i hesitate i'm like wait maybe we can you know but mm, <laughs> maybe not and by the way nature is going to tell us how it needs to get done anyway mm. and we're seeing that happen so i kind of almost want to take it back to what you guys you know really specialized in from this from the start which is which is plastic itself um Funnily enough, you know, we we've talked about the root of these problems, and the root of plastics problem is again, it's prop, it's profit. Um, it's cheap to make. Um, it's super malleable. It has all these great, uh, great properties. But what do you feel about plastic now as a whole? In your perception of it, do you feel like plastic is bad all all altogether, or do you feel that there's a place for it in the world still? Yeah, it's not bad or good. It's really a, an extension. It's a tool of our will, and it's how we use it. Or, or or how we misuse it, maybe right. that's perhaps more, accurate, more important. Yeah. I mean, I think there's part of an issue, the part of the issue is economic. It's so cheap to make virgin plastic. It comes from oils, which are so cheap. I mean, we're not, we're not accurately pricing right. these things. Um, and, and so is it plastic itself that's the problem? Is it our use of it? Are we going to blame consumers for not recycling? And are we going to blame industry for not doing what they need to do? It's all part of this bigger, bigger, bigger system. So I would just, the way I approach everything is not, again, not from a place of arrogance and knowing like this is wrong and you're doing this. Because I mean, you point that finger and that finger eventually goes all the way around the world and points at you. <laughs> <laughs> and so can we actually transform the way in which we consume, the way we look at these products and these items? Can we put a little bit extra effort to find something that uh, isn't going to end up in the landfill for a thousand years or end up in the ocean in, in some fish um, and kill it? And the answer is yes. There's so many alternatives. There's so many ways. There, there's also just abstinence, not using. Uh, that That's an option as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and, um, and I think, yeah, at, at its heart, there's there's so many there's so many layers to the things. But I, I actually want to take it back and just because I think a lot of people um, might not know, uh, kind of what you just touched on about this sort of the relationship between oil and plastic, um, and what pe essentially what petrochemicals are. Uh, so I would love for just for you to explain, you know, your perception of how you know petrochemicals have become a thing and become impacted uh, climate change. Because I feel like a lot of people would hear the word petrochemical and not quite know what it means. So when you have um, oil that's so inexpensive and you can, you know, use it for many applications, including making plastic, uh, you know, countless countless applications. 
and it's so cheap that becomes a problem because now the financial incentive is to use these inexpensive resources to do all of those things. If we actually priced into the price, the cost of oil, um, you know, cleaning up the environment, and that would be climate, right? How do we clean the the atmosphere of all the carbon that you get from burning oil? Uh, how do we clean up the oceans and all the plastic in the in the natural world and the environment? What's that going to cost? Uh, the cost of um, microfibers that you know it, it get washed, you know, down our washing machines into the into the rivers and waterways into the ocean. Uh, I mean, the mm. list goes on and on. But if we actually took the the cost that it would, how much it would cost to actually clean up the environment and then priced it into the cost of a barrel of oil. I mean, it would be so expensive. It would be a lot more expensive that it would temper how much we right. use. And it would also fuel, no pun intended, it would fuel innovation. So yeah, it's it's all it all comes back to 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 the way everything's connected and, and the effects that it has down that chain. It's interesting how we've come this far uh, down this road where we you know, we revere things that don't serve us. And I guess that's kind of the definition of a cult in a way where you serve something so avidly that doesn't really serve you. So for you as a solution, like what do you broadly speaking think is a way for us to help to protect our ocean and protect our planet and change our relationship with plastic? Yeah, I do really believe in, and I hate to get too uh, spiritual about it, but... <laughs> um, give up on trying to save the earth and save the ocean, like just as a mentality. It doesn't mean that as a result of your effort, things won't become more habitable and beautiful and the environment won't be, won't thank you for your effort, but it's this Im impulse to try and enact your will upon the earth. I think reshift your focus on how can I live more aligned with nature and myself so that I tread more lightly. And through that impulse, share that wisdom, share what you discover about yourself with others. Um, work together. It's so important that we come together and share with each other what we've discovered. And create communities that reflect the same values of the world. Um, but if we want to start living in a new society, we have to start living as if we are in a new society. Mm. So, you know, abandon your ambitions to be Jeff Bezos and have a trillion dollars, you know. <laughs> Question how many trillion dollars? <laughs> you, you you still kind of want to be him, don't you? I mean, you still kind of want to have a trillion dollars. No, I could. I, I don't. What you do with a trillion dollars? I I couldn't oh. think of uh, why, why what what one would do with that. I know you give it away immediately. Right, exactly. Like, you immediately. never get to a trillion dollars. You never get there because you've already given it away. Money. I mean, especially like if if you're a true capitalist, if you're sort of a fundamental capitalist, there's an argument to be had. Money needs to flow in the system. You can't hold on to it. So give it away. Invest it. But yeah, I mean, try and temper your ambitions to be 
accumulating the, the most amount of things. So yeah, do the exercise of just in your own life, like where am I placing value? I totally agree. I have a big thing about uh, about adequacy and about where you find about adequacy, adequacy, uh, feeling adequate in your in yourself, uh-huh. um, and and essentially what it all comes down to is if you always do right by people, it's your right as a human being to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and like the person who's looking back at you. Um, and as long as you do right by the people and and the environment around you then no one can take that away from you unless you unless you let them. And that's the problem is we do let people take our adequacy away um, and then they sell it back to us uh, mm. in the form of material. Mm. They set a shadow of our adequacy back to us mm. as, in a form of materialism. Um, I want to just see, do you feel the eco-anxiety that you, know, you may have felt through the early years? Do you feel it now? Anxiety is unmet emotion. When you're either cowering from it or ignoring it, it crops up as anxiety. It's, it's energy as emotion that's coming out without your mindful presence. Um, so I don't currently have eco-anxiety, but I, but I do contemplate my mortality and I do consider um, people around the world suffering because of how we treat the world and the environment and each other. And that that does make me feel a lot of emotion. But I choose not to ignore it. I choose to to take the time to meditate on it and um, process it and metabolize that fear, that emotion, so that it can fuel me in the work that I do. So no anxiety, only fuel to to lean in more and work harder to uh, manifest the, the world that, that we all want and a healthy ocean. Adrian, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, man. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Hey, listeners, just before you go, here's a quick ocean saving tip for you from our guest. Here's a tip to save the ocean. Eat right. Take care of your health. Nourish your body with the nutrients so that you can think, feel, and create the world that you want to see. 52 Hertz is a podcast from Lonely Whale. Our show is produced by Emma Riley and Mindy Raymaker, with writing from Kirsten Stringer and audio engineering by James Riley. Special thanks to Young Hero, Emmy Kane, Kendall Starkman, and Danny Whitty. Subscribe to 52 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Patrice Jones. Thanks for listening. Until next time, tune in to 52 Hertz and tune out plastic.